In Romans 5, verses 6 through 8, the Apostle Paul, under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, writes, You see, at just the right time, when we were still powerless, Christ died for the ungodly. At just the right time, the events of the cross, they weren't some accident of history. This wasn't something that just happened. This was something that God planned, that God chose just the right time. This was something that happened after the law had done its work for centuries. It's work of exposing the fact that man was unable, too weak, too sinful to ever make right their own sin, to ever measure up to the standard of divine righteousness. There was nothing on our own that we could do to make right what was wrong because of sin. At just the right time, And Paul writes, Christ died for the ungodly. And he seems to understand that we will not really fully understand the the depth of that statement, that Christ died for the ungodly. Because he goes on and he writes, very rarely will anyone die for a righteous person. A righteous person there seems to be somebody who, who is an upright person, a person who does good things, the kind of person you would have respect for. And he says, very rarely would anybody consider dying for someone just because we have that kind of respect for them, just because they're that kind of upright person. That would not be enough. Even though we respect them, that would rarely be enough that we would be willing to sacrifice our life for them. He goes on and says, though for a good person, someone might possibly dare to die. And a good person, there seems to be somebody who is kind, somebody who's caring, somebody with whom we have some kind of relational connection. Maybe that person Maybe that person who cares for you and you care for them, maybe in that case, you might be willing to sacrifice your life for them. Still, maybe not. But maybe then that would happen. But then Paul goes on to say, but do you understand how incredible the love of God is? But God demonstrates his own love for us in this. While we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Not someone who was righteous, not someone who was good, a sinner, the ungodly. Christ died for us because his love was that kind of love. Nothing did we have to offer him that was worthy of it, yet Christ died for us. I think we often fail to understand what Christ did on the cross because we fail to understand just how horrifying our sin is just how horrible an offense sin is. I think many times we think of God as somehow looking at sin and and sort of saying a little pat on the head and saying, well, you know, you shouldn't do that. That's not good. Maybe just kind of pushes it aside and dismisses it. Says, you know, I know know that was wrong and you kind of get it now, so it's okay. Sin is just sort of a little mistake that we make. I know in my own life when someone has has offended me with their sin, has in some way done harm against me because of sin. And and when I feel this responsibility to forgive them, when I'm stuck in that tension between being really hurt by the offense of sin, but also wanting relationship with somebody in some way, or, or feeling a responsibility to respond with forgiveness, that I'm often stuck in this tension. This tension between knowing that that's the right thing to do, the good thing to do, but also wanting that person to pay for that offense, 
Something in me wanting them to feel the kind of pain I feel in that moment. And my tendency is to resolve that tension by finding a way to make that sin smaller. Something that I can somehow drum up enough forgiveness. Because if the sin is small enough, then maybe, maybe I can forgive it and move back into relationship. I'll tend to do that sometimes by by trying to look at that person and understand them and finding some way in them to justify that act. It wasn't really just a willful choice against me or being inconsiderate or thoughtless towards me. It was somehow something that they really couldn't help but choose. And, And sometimes all those things may be true in their life, but it still doesn't excuse the fact that that was an act of sin, a willful choice to harm another. Or sometimes maybe I'll look inside myself and I'll say, you know, sin's in me too. I harm others. I sin just like them. So, so, and again, even though that's true, sometimes I look inside myself to say, but I'm not so bad and I do that. So maybe you're not so bad and you do that. So again, this can be forgiven. It's not so big. Or maybe sometimes it's just not that complicated. Maybe sometimes I just plain try not to think about it. I just try to push it aside and dismiss it and pretend it didn't really happen. And and now we can kind of call it forgiveness, even though I'm really not forgiving much of anything. I'm just kind of making it disappear. The Apostle Paul isn't talking about any of that in Romans 5. He says that God chose to love the ungodly. God chose to love the sinner. Doesn't dismiss it at all, doesn't make it smaller than it was, calls it what it is. He looks into the face of our offense, in the face of our sin, as horrifying as it is. And he chooses to love. In a class that I'm teaching, ACG, where I'm teaching uh, this last semester, I read a quote recently from Miroslav Volf. He's a Croatian theologian. I want to read it here tonight. He's a Croatian theologian who teaches at Yale Divinity School right now. And he he says that he came to understand, in some ways, the goodness of God's wrath through the horrors of ethnic uh, cleansing, through warfare. That somehow in the midst of that, he came to understand something, that God's wrath could actually be a good thing. Here's what he writes to explain that. He says, I used to think that wrath was unworthy of God. Isn't God love? Shouldn't divine love be beyond wrath? God is love, and God loves every person and every creature. But that's exactly why God is wrathful against some of them. My last resistance to the idea of God's wrath was a, was a casualty of war in former Yugoslavia, the reason from, region from which I came. According to some estimates, 200,000 people were killed and over 3 million were displaced. My villages and cities were destroyed. My people shelled day in and day out some of them brutalized beyond imagination, and I could not imagine God not being angry. Or think of Rwanda in the last decade of the past century where 800,000 people were hacked to death in just 100 days. How did God react to the carnage? By doning on the perpetrators in grandparently fashion? By refusing to condemn the bloodbath, but instead affirming the perpetrators' basic goodness? Wasn't God fiercely angry with them? Though I used to complain about the indecency of the idea of God's wrath, 
I came to think that I would have to rebel against a God who wasn't wrathful at the sight of the world's evil. God is wrathful in spite of be- isn't wrathful in spite of being love. God is wrathful because of love. God loves the Son. And because God loves his Son, he hates sin, which is ultimately a rejection of the Son. God loves his children. And because he loves his children, he hates any abuse of them or misuse of them or trampling on them or neglect. God loves his world. And because he loves his world, he hates anything that would tarnish it or dismiss it or abuse it. God loves goodness and God loves beauty and God loves righteousness. And because he loves those things, he hates sin and he hates evil. And if we look at the cross we come to understand just how wretched sin and evil really are. Sin and evil are so wretched, so ugly, so disgusting, that they are deserving of a wrath so horrifying we severe as the cross. Sin is so horrible that this is the means through which God's wrath was expressed against our sin. Most of you have heard before the the cross was just a horrible, uh, horrible device invented by men to torture others. The Romans, who were such masters of using it, wouldn't use it on their own citizens. They didn't want in any way to think of somehow that being something they could possibly ever experience. It was a form of torture that was meant to extend life as long as possible while, while putting on that person the ultimate amount of suffering and to do all that before others on display for others as a deterrent for them doing what that criminal had done. It was a horrible, horrible means of torture. And that was the means through which God expressed his wrath against man's sin. If you're ever tempted to think sin isn't such a big deal, if you're ever tempted to think your sin isn't so bad, stop and remember the cross. Sin is ugly, horrible, dehumanizing, devastating. And if we stop there tonight, if that's all we talk about, that would be a sad thing. If all we do is look at the cross and we remember how horrible sin is, I think we have a very distorted view of reality. Sin is absolutely ugly and horrible and devastating. But the cross tells us something more than that. We remember the cross to remember how horrible sin is, but we also remember the cross that we might remember how incredibly beautiful and great and remarkable and awesome God's love is. Because as much as God expressed his wrath towards sin and poured it out upon sin on the cross, God then stepped in between us and that wrath, and he took that wrath upon himself. He received it. Because of his great love, as horrible as sin was, as the incredible, horrible wrath it deserved, he took it upon himself. Paul writes, God demonstrates his own love for us in this. While we were still sinners, Christ died for us. In Galatians 3, he writes, Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law by becoming a curse for us. To the church at Corinth, he writes, God made him who had no sin to be sin for us, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. God does pour out his wrath upon sin. God is a just and a holy God. 
But God is a loving God. A love that is so remarkable, it is hard for us to understand, isn't it? It's what Paul will later pray. He just wishes we could get it. We could just understand how, how long and how deep and how high and how great God's love is. Wishes we could just get it. Because if we could get it, it would change everything. I hope you'll remember the cross. I love the fact that even as, even as these events are going on, even as Christ is taking on this wrath that we deserve, the horrible consequences of sin that are ours, you still see in Christ's love. On his way to the cross, on his way to that hill where he will be crucified, along the path as women are mourning, as we just heard, as those women are mourning, he turns to them and, and he thinks of them. Don't mourn for me, mourn for yourself, because difficult things are coming. Mourn for yourself instead. As he's nailed to that cross and experiences that horrible pain, he turns to his father and he says, Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. As a criminal besides him pleads for mercy, he tells him that he will have eternal life. He even turns to this disciple he loves, John, and he tells John, John, I want you to, to be like a son to my mother Mary, and I want you to take care of her. This, this wasn't just an expression of love, that it was something that just Christ did in that moment. Christ is love. God is love. That is his very being. That's who he is. This is the ultimate demonstration of it. This is where we see it like we see it nowhere else. I just want to remind you today that at the center of everything is the cross. Today we gather together to remember the cross, to draw our attention towards it. And I hope we'll do that well tonight. But remember the cross every day. When we come before the cross, stop and remember what it represents, what it demonstrates, what it tells us. I recently heard a sermon by John Stott. In this sermon, he talks about British journalist Malcolm Muggeridge, and he tells a story that he told that I want to share with you tonight. In the story, Malcolm Muggeridge talks about his upbringing as a child in a church that he described as a blend of political idealism and religiosity. As a matter of fact, one of the phrases he used to describe his church was he said it was an agnosticism sweetened by hymns. I love that phrase. He, he says he was raised in that church all along to, to kind of understand a Jesus of the good cause. What he meant by that was he was raised to see Jesus and primarily our reason to to think about and understand and know Jesus was because he was a really good goal mo uh, role model. He was the one who taught us what a good life was like. And he says, I was raised to believe that my whole childhood. Yet he says, in the midst of being raised to believe that, something tugged at his heart and at his mind. Something continually told him that, you know, Jesus was about something more than just being a good role model that there's something more here, something more I need to know. Even though no one was telling him that, something kept tugging at him. And he said that thing that kept calling his attention to understand that Jesus was about something more than that was the cross. He writes this, I would catch a glimpse of a cross, not necessarily a crucifix, maybe two pieces of wood accidentally nailed together on a telegraph pole, for instance, and suddenly my heart would stand still. In an instinctive, intuitive way, I understood that something more important, more tumultuous, more passionate was at issue than our good causes, however admirable they might have been. 
Something to do with the deep inner nature of life itself, mine and all of life. Something inescapable, pursuing and pursued, forever beyond my reach, and yet under my hand. Part of the air I breathe and lost in the wide firmament above. It was, I know, an obsessive interest, something I avidly sought out. I might fasten bits of wood together myself or doodle it. This symbol, which was considered to be, a, to be derisory in my home, was yet also the focus of inconceivable hopes and desires like a lost love's face. As I remember this, a sense of my own failure lies leadenly upon me. I should have worn it over my heart, carried it, a pressured standard never to be wrested out of my hands. It should have been my cult, my uniform, my language, my life. I shall have no excuse. I can't say I didn't know. I knew from the beginning, and yet I turned away. Muggridge looks back and he understands that that cross was telling me something that I should never have let go of, something I knew that would change my life. I needed to remember it daily to hold on to it. The cross proclaims how utterly worthy we are of God's wrath because of our sin. The cross proclaims to us how foolish it is to believe that God's wrath could somehow be averted by just some good works on our part. But when we see who hangs on that cross, the cross also reminds us how great and awesome and beautiful and remarkable is God's love for us, that he would send his one and only son to die in our place. That great love that is ours, if we'll only turn to Christ and receive it. Remember the cross. Let's pray. Father, I do pray that when we see the cross, when we remember that symbol, it would point us to the reality of how horrible and ugly and devastating, how disgusting and dehumanizing and diminishing is sin. I pray, Father, we would not somehow justify it, we would not somehow try to make it less, but we would face just how horrible it is. But, Father, I pray that our gaze would not stay there. I pray, Father, that would be just for a moment. Because when we see how horrible sin is, I pray, Father, that also the cross would remind us that in the face of that great sin, you still loved us. I pray, Father, that instead our minds would be focused on how remarkable and how incredible and how great is your love and your grace. I pray, Father, that that love and that grace would guide us every day of our lives. In your blessed name, amen.